Okay, we've been gathering for corporate worship for a little over a year now, and in this time we've talked through a bunch of things together. <clears throat> one of the things we have yet to touch, one of the things we have yet to talk about is money, right? So today we get to do that. And I know that a few of you just got a bit anxious as I said that, but we get to talk about money. We're in our preaching series called Be the Church or Being the Church, and we're talking through what are the marks of the members of a local church like Seven Mile Road. If you're a member here, if you're a believer in the gospel, what does it look like? What's your identity? What do you do? And so this week we're talking about the church as stewards. Okay, and we'll talk through what that word means, but the idea is we're going to enter into the realm of money and wealth and giving and generosity. And I need you to hear that since we haven't talked about this yet, I'm actually very excited to study this with you, right? I know that instinctively five of you just grabbed your wallets just to make sure it's still there, right, as though I was going to do some kind of Jedi mind trick and grab your wallet. I know that if you're new to church, this is your worst nightmare come true, right? So you're actually in church, which you can hardly believe, and now the preacher is going to try and weasel his way into your wallet, right? So you're a bit skeptical of organized religion, and now we're going to, especially on top of that, talk about money. But what I need you to do is just give me the benefit of the doubt, hear me out, hear the scriptures out, before you're tempted to tune me out, okay? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had this one saying where he said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Now that might be a bit clever, a bit cute, but there's a, an ounce of truth to that, which is I think we'd all give, we get how the gospel impacts here, what we know, and even what happens here, what we believe, but what on earth does the gospel have to do with what happens here? What happens with our wallets? right? What is that? What does Jesus' death and resurrection have to do with what's going on here? But here's the thing. If you read the New Testament for any time at all, you're bound to inevitably stumble into Jesus talking about money, because Jesus actually had a great deal to say about money. Jesus spoke about money more than any other single issue that he talked about. Jesus was convinced that how you saw and related to your money was a good indicator of whether or not you had come to believe the gospel at all. Now that's a strong word, so hear that again. Jesus is convinced that how you relate to, how you give, how you invest, how you save, how you spend your money is a good look into the condition of your heart. So if you're sick and your heart's not well, you go to the doctor, he'll hook you up to an EKG machine. Jesus would connect your heart to your wallet, to your checkbook, to the report that comes back from mint.com, and he would look at that and see the condition of how your heart is doing. That what you do with your money, how you view it, how you relate to it, is a good indicator of whether or not the gospel has come and penetrated and borne fruit in your heart. Okay, and on top of all of that, Right now is probably as good as time as any to talk through these things, right? We're in December. We're, we're around the corner from Christmas. So some of us are remembering the gift of Jesus given to us. Certainly all of us are remembering the gifts we want to get and give. So giving and generosity and buying gifts are on the mind at this time. You know what it is you want. You know what it is you need to buy. This is also the time of the year where... It's more commercialized than any other time of the year, 
right? So you turn on the TV and every fourth commercial is the one with the car commercial, right? So that neighborhood where every driveway has a new Lexus with a pretty red bow on top, and you're wondering, what neighborhood is that? And how do I get to live there, right? It's, it's the time where money's on your mind. You're at the year end. Some of you are looking forward to Christmas bonuses. Some of you are looking forward to the new year and promotions. Some of you are looking forward to the new year and dreading pink slips. Uh, money is on the mind. Even as a church, we're coming to the end of our budget year. We're also in the middle of a fundraising campaign or, or capital campaign to repair and renovate this property that we've been given. So all of us, money is on the mind. And so what we want to do is allow the scriptures to enter into that fray and, and allow the scriptures to be a part of that whole mix and allow God's word to speak into that conversation. And so today we're in 2 Corinthians 8. It's the passage Kurt read for us, page 967 of your Bibles. And in 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is going to write to a baby church plant, much like ours, in a city called Corinth, and he's going to speak to them about their money. Specifically, he's going to speak to them about their giving and about their generosity and how the gospel plays into this whole mix. All right, 2 Corinthians 8, while you turn there, let me pray and turn our attentions to the Lord, and then we'll get to work together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for these men and women, brothers and sisters that you have gathered here. We thank you for the posture of their hearts as they sit under your word. We pray that you would come and humble us to sit ready to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. We pray that you would, by your spirit, assist both the preaching and the hearing of your word, that these words that come from my mouth would be yours, that they would come into our hear ears and down to our hearts, and that they would bear fruit there, that we might hear and repent and believe and respond and go and do exactly what it is your word says. That is exactly what we're praying for, and we need Jesus and his power and the Holy Spirit to have it accomplished. And so we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, before we look at 2 Corinthians 8, the passage I want to walk you through, I want to give you two truths to sort of frame this whole conversation. Two biblical truths to sort of support everything else we're going to say. Two truths that Christians have historically held when it comes to any conversation about money or giving or generosity. Here's the first one. First, God owns everything. God owns everything. Whenever we're going to talk about money or giving or generosity, I need you to hear that God owns everything, that God does not need anything from us, especially when we're going to talk about giving to God, giving to the work of the gospel, giving to the poor, giving to the church. I need you all to remember very clearly, we don't give as though God needed anything from us. Maybe that's a truth you already know, but I want you to think through it for a moment with me. God owns everything, and so God has never needed anything from you, certainly not your currency, your coin, your paper, or your money, because God owns everything, right? God's bills for running the universe are not being met by your giving. God is not putting food on his plate through your generosity. Listen to these words from Psalm 50 of what the Lord says. The Lord says, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, 
I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness is mine. Do you hear what the Lord's saying? The Lord's saying, if I was the kind of God that got hungry, I wouldn't talk to you about it. Because I own everything, every beast that moves, every cattle and on every hill, every bird in the sky, I own it all. Everything is mine. God owns everything. God has never needed anything from us. So it's not that the giving that we drop into the basket is somehow going to build homes for God in heaven, some kind of habitat for divinity kind of project, right? That God is working and building expansions in heaven through what we're giving to him. Revelations will tell us that God takes the gold that you and I fight for and kill for on earth and uses it to pave the sidewalks of heaven. Think through that. Maybe that's metaphorical, maybe that's just figurative, but the point is the most precious metal we know is like concrete to him. It's the stuff he lines the streets with. God has never needed anything from us because God owns everything. So when you're going to talk about giving or generosity or money, I need you to have that first truth in mind, that God owns everything, that God's never needed anything. But rather, and here's the second truth that Christians have historically held, everything we have comes from God. God owns everything, and everything we have has been given to us by God. You see, God is the first and the greatest giver. No one is ever going to outgive God because God owns everything and has been generous with it all without limit or without degree. God has given you everything that you have. Now, I know that that flies against the face of our culture and the message of our world and everything that our world would have you believe. Every commercial on TV has one message and one aim, which is you work for it, you deserved it, you earned it, it's your money, so you owe it to yourself to go and buy that thing, right? It's your money, you earned it, you studied for it, you worked for it, it's yours, and so you get to spend it or save it or throw it away, but no one else is in on the conversation because it's yours. And the scriptures would say, uh-uh. The scriptures would say, everything you have has come from God. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18, just hear it. It says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Hear that again. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So the very wealth that you have, God gave you the power to get it. So that God would say to you, listen, the air that you breathe is on loan from me. The mind that you use, the resources that you enjoy, the connections that you have, the title that you own, all of it came from me. Have you ever thought, why were you born here? Why weren't you born in some remote village in Vietnam with no access to education or food or any sight of Jesus or the gospel? Why did God put you here? Because you very likely could have been born like the rest of the world. It said that if you own, if you make $2,500 a year, you are among the richest 15% of the world. Think through that. If you make about $20,000 a year, you are in the 10% richest in the world. All you have to make is $2,500 a year, and you're among the 15 richest percent people of the world. Why were you born to what you were born to? And God would look at every one of us 
and say, it's because of me. Everything you have, everything that you own is mine. Now, again, that might be simple, and maybe you know it, but think through it for a second with me. Because here's what I've learned. As I've meditated on this this week, and I've let this truth sort of knead into my heart, it's been cutting my heart the whole time. Because I struggle with giving or generosity because I don't believe that. I know it, but I don't believe it. Because in my heart, what I really believe is I look at all my stuff, and I think it's mine. I really do. And maybe you do as well. You look at the stuff that you have, the money in your bank accounts, the money is in your wallet, and this stuff is yours. Now, I see how silly that is when it's about someone else. For example, I see how silly that kind of thinking is in Hannah, my three-year-old. My three-year-old has learned two bad words. One is the word no, and the other is mine. And when she uses them together, it's the worst, right? So Hannah will grab something like a remote, and I'll say, Hannah, can I have that? No. And then I go, why not, sweetheart? It's mine. And I don't know where she got it, but she did. Hannah, can you share your hat with Josiah? He doesn't have a hat. No. Why not, sweetie? It's mine. Now, as a sophisticated, wise adult, what I want to do is sit my three-year-old down and say, what? You have nothing that I didn't give you, right? I saw when you were born. I saw how you came out. You were naked and screaming, and you brought nothing into the world. Everything you have, Dad gave you. And if Dad wants to take something away, it's honestly for your good. It's not good for you to sit in front of TV for eight hours. So take that away, and here's a book, right? And it'll be good for you. But my three-year-old does not have the wisdom or capacity to see that. She doesn't see it, and neither do I, right? I have a father in heaven who has given me all that I have, and I scream over every one of these things, mine. And I have a good father who, in wanting to take some of these things away, wants to give me a better treasure, but I don't have the ability to see it. I don't have the wisdom to see it. I don't have the capacity to see it. And so all I do is scream like a three-year-old, it's mine, and the scriptures say, until you get that truth, every conversation about giving or generosity will, will end up with you shouting like a three-year-old. God has given you all that you have. And what the scriptures call you is a steward. A steward, that's what we are. A steward is simply someone who has been entrusted with something that belongs to someone else. And our job is to use some of it, to manage some of it, and to give some of it. What we are is taking the resources, time, whatever it is that God has given to us, and stewarding it and managing it for God. So, for example, in Luke 12, Jesus will tell the story of a certain master who had a certain wicked steward. This master entrusts to the steward, to this servant, his entire estate, and then he goes away. And when he returns, he finds that this servant has sort of moved in as though this whole thing was his. He's eating the food and drinking the wine and mistreating the servants as though this thing was his. It'd be like if you were going out of town and you called a friend and said, hey, I'm going on vacation. Could you watch my house? And by the time you got home, the locks are changed. He's moved in, scribbled your name out of the deed, written in his own, and now he lives there like he owns the place. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. That's the point of, of Luke 12. Jesus tells this parable to say, listen, 
Everything you have has been given you by God, and you are a steward over it. And it takes this deadly serious conversation because the master returns and literally hacks to pieces this steward. Because it's a very serious thing. This whole conversation is a very deadly serious thing. It's a window into your soul as to whether or not you get the gospel. As to whether or not you get God when it comes to this whole thing. So you need these two truths before anything else will say. Because otherwise any conversation about giving will have you shouting mine. Everything belongs to God. He needs nothing. And everything you have has been given to you by God so that you might be a steward. Right? I read this quote this week that's been working its way into my mind over and over again. It was simply this. What if God prospered you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving? That's simple. What if God prospered you not to raise ever exponentially your standard of living but to raise your standard of giving what if your call is to be a steward because God owns it all and everything you have has come from God all right if we can hold those two truths then we're ready to enter into any kind of conversation about what would it look like for us to be good stewards what would it look like for us to give as God requires us to give what what does christian giving look like all right for that i want us to turn back to second corinthians 8 page 967 let me read for you again the first seven verses of this passage we want you to know brothers about the grace of god that has been given among the churches of macedonia for in a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. All right, let me give you the context, the background of what's happening here. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, both chapters, we don't have the time to go through 9, so I would encourage you to read them together. But in these two chapters, what Paul is doing is he's basically fundraising. The Apostle Paul is fundraising with this baby church plant in Corinth. What's happened is that there's this great famine that hits Jerusalem, that hits Judea, so that the Jewish Christians are literally starving to death. And so their brothers and sisters in the Lord are dying because of this famine. And so Paul is going to raise collection, raise these funds from all the churches that he's planted to go and help and meet their need. So he's going to write to Corinth and call on them to participate in this collection, to give towards this effort. And as he does in chapter 8, he's going to point them to what happened in Macedonia. So in the first seven verses, what he's doing is he's writing to Corinth and he's saying, hey, listen to how the grace of God worked its way out in Macedonia. And it's not this kind of unhealthy comparison. It's rather listen to how the grace of God is working here and let that inspire you and call you to allow the grace of God to work here. So he points to Macedonia. And what does he say about them? He's going to tell them how the collection went in Macedonia. 
He says, here was their circumstance, and he describes it like this. They were in the midst of extreme poverty and severe affliction. Do you see that? Verse 2. For in a, a severe test of affliction, and then their extreme poverty. That's the condition Macedonia is in. All right, imagine yourself in that position. Imagine the economy tanks in Philadelphia, and Seven Mile Road finds itself in extreme poverty. The truth is we are so rich, we honestly wouldn't even know what that looks like. We wouldn't even know what it means to have extreme poverty, but pretend we're there. And coupled with extreme poverty is this test of affliction. Maybe the church is being persecuted. Maybe the church in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, etc., are being run out of town for the, their faith in the gospel. Imagine a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. If that hits here, I would imagine the first thing to go out the window is our joy, and the second thing to go out with it is our generosity, right? If, if extreme poverty and severe affliction hits us, out goes joy and out goes generosity. That would be the time where we would do what? We'd sort of get down like in our bunker mentality and now turn inward and say, how are we going to survive this thing? If we're going to cut the budget, where's the first place that gets cut? Our giving outwards, because we've got to stay afloat here. Now hear what happens, however, at Macedonia. Their extreme poverty and their severe affliction resulted in an abundance of joy and an overflowing of generosity. They're in extreme poverty, severe affliction, and the result is this abundance of joy and this overflowing in a wealth of generosity. So here's the question. How does that happen? Where, where does that, where did they get that idea from? How could they do that? I mean, if you look at verse 4, you get how much this is being played out because Paul will say, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Think of that. Paul is saying, they were begging us to have the grace, to have the favor of participating in this collection. When you think of fundraising, who does the begging? Who writes the letters? Who makes the appeal? Who gives the call and casts the vision and makes appointments and gives the elevator speech? Who does the begging? But here, Paul is saying he didn't beg them to give. They begged him to participate. That's a church in our era. This is New Testament Christianity. What is it that happened in Macedonia that would move them to that? Right? This is the time when they should literally be raising funds for themselves. How is it then that they're giving joyfully with an overflow of generosity? How does that happen? How did it happen for them? Where did they get such an idea? Where did they get this idea of being generous, even at cost to themselves and sacrificing, and maintaining joy while doing the whole thing? Where did they get the idea that let us become poorer so that these others might become rich. It's right here in this passage. And in this passage, I want to give you two things. One is the motivation for Christian giving, and two is the marks of Christian giving. The motivation for Christian giving and the marks of Christian giving. What is it that motivated Macedonia and would, Paul believes, motivate the Corinthians, and Paul would further, if he were talking to us, believe, motivate the seven-mile Rhodians to this kind of generosity. He tells us in verse 8 and 9. Listen to what he says. 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Listen to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Where did the Macedonians get the idea of sacrifice and generosity and joy? They got it from Jesus. For you know, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. Think of that. That's the gospel. Here's the motivation for Christian giving. We look to Jesus and we see him who was rich. Remember what we said in the beginning. God owned everything and owns it all. Jesus was from eternity past, from before there was a beginning. He was with the Father, enthroned in heaven, surrounded by angels, all the glory rightfully his. And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's what we remember at Christmas time, right? The one who formed everything now being formed. He's becoming poor. The one whom the heavens could not hold is now being held together in the womb of a teenage girl. The one who was encircled by and worshipped by and served by and attended to angels in heaven is now born to the company of sheep and cattle. And he's born into such a poor family that when mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, go to the temple to give their offering, they can't even afford the lamb that is prescribed by the law. There's a provision made for the poor of some pigeons, which is what they offer. He grows up for 30 years swinging a hammer, working a blue-collar job as a carpenter, and then goes into full-time ministry only to be supported by some wealthy women. He tells one prospective follower, listen, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to put my head down. A homeless, itinerant preacher, but it's not just the lack of material things. Though he was rich, he became poor. How? He gave till he had nothing left to give. He gave till there was literally nothing left you could take from him for your sake. For your sake, he was rich and he became poor. That is, he allowed them to strip him nude and hang him to the tree, and he gave of himself till there was nothing else you could take from him. He becomes poor so that the wrath of God is poured onto him. Our sin is put on him. Our filth and our shame put on him. The father turns his face away from him so that he's hanging there alone with nothing left. His body broken, every ounce of blood he has, everything he has, for your sake, he becomes poor. Though he was rich, he overflowed with generosity for your sake and became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Think of what happened for you. You went from naked to now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You went from sinner to forgiven. You went from enemy of God to being adopted into the family, a son of God, and now a co-heir with Christ so that the entire universe is your inheritance. You became rich. 
You had a debt you could not pay. And Colossians says Jesus canceled that debt on the cross. And now your account is overflowing with the righteousness of Christ. You went to God spiritually bankrupt and broke. And Jesus became broke for you so that now your account is rich towards God. You are literally lined up to inherit the universe. Your inheritance is that with Christ. You're going to be seated with Christ. You're going to stand in judgment over the angels. The whole universe is written into the will for you. You've become rich. Christ has forgiven your sins. You have the hope of eternal life. The Holy Spirit has been put in you. Power to overcome all your flaws and failures. Jesus is making you new. He's given you the church. He's given you fellowship. He's given you all things. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Every debt you owed, Jesus paid so that now your account is overflowing with the credit of Christ. You gave him your debt. He gave you his account, and now you are rich in the sight of God. How does Paul motivate the Corinthians to give? Not out of guilt, not the way we would do it. He tells them to look at Jesus. What's going to be the motivation for their giving, for their generosity? Look to the gospel of Jesus. Here's what I want you to hear. Christian giving is rooted in and motivated by and empowered by the gospel. The gospel is the motivation. So, so I want you to honestly just think about how it is you give if you do give. If you do give, I'd imagine, for me, our giving looks mostly like this. We give out of guilt, right? So maybe we've seen enough pictures of poor people somewhere else. We'll maybe give to that. Or we know we're supposed to give, and so we give. But usually there's no joy. It's usually reluctant. It's usually compulsion. But we give because we have to give. We give sometimes because we think we're going to pay off a debt to God. Warren Buffett, the well-known billionaire, he gave away some $37 billion. And when he did, this is what he said. He said, there are many ways to get to heaven. This is a great one. He later went and clarified his sentence, but that sentiment, maybe we're just not as honest in, as him. That sentiment is in all of us, which is this is the way that I'm going to climb to God. I'm going to pay off my debt so that in the end he will owe me. The basket comes by. And you haven't thought about it, you haven't prayed about it, you haven't been intentional about it, but everyone's watching, so you've got to dump something in. We do it to impress God, or we do it to impress people, we do it to appease our own guilt. None of that is gospel giving. Gospel giving says, Jesus paid your debt. You don't have anything left to pay. So you don't have to pay to get right with God. Jesus already paid your debt. You don't have to check off a box. Jesus checked every box for you. You don't have to fulfill a law of righteousness. Jesus fulfilled every law for you. So now in gospel giving, it's not that I have to give. It's that I get to give. I don't have to give to earn my seat with him. Jesus earned it for me. I don't have to give to pay off my debt. Jesus paid it for me. I don't have to give for any reason. I get to give. 
I get to participate in seeing others blessed just as Jesus blessed me. I get to see others made rich through my generosity just like I was made rich through his. I get to see the gospel go to work and redeem lives just like the gospel went to work and redeemed my life. I get to participate. He's already broken the bank on me. He's already made me rich beyond your wildest dreams. So what could you take from me? I get to give. I'm in line to inherit the entire universe. So what are you going to take from me? It's not that I have to give. I get to give. But some of you will ask, okay, Ajay, I get that. But practically, dollars and cents, how does that work out? What am I supposed to give? Right? Maybe, maybe you'd say, okay, I get the motivation of Christian giving is not law, it's not impressing people, it's not impressing God, but how do I know if my giving is in response to the gospel? How do I know if my giving is, is motivated by the gospel? Practically, how does that work out? Let me tell you. Let me give you the marks of Christian giving. Here's the motivation, now here are the marks of Christian giving. Here's what your giving should look like. In the Old Testament, you had what was called a tithe. And so everyone was required to give one-tenth of their income, 10%, to the work of the temple and the priests and the work of God and for the poor. If you go back to to the Old Testament and you read through the law, the requirement was actually not 10%. That was one of the tithes. The tithes, when you totaled them all up, was closer to 25%. So if you are here trying to satisfy a law, I would much rather you satisfy that one than the 10%, right? Because when you get to the New Testament, there is no more mention of the tithe law. That 10% and that 25% is completely thrown out. So then how are you to mark your giving in the New Testament? How are you to give even here at Seven Mile Road? I want to give you a very simple formula. You take your paycheck and you multiply it by three factors, generosity, sacrifice, and joy. And I'm dead serious. You take your paycheck every time it comes, and you multiply it by generosity, you multiply it by sacrifice, and you multiply it by joy. And whatever that number works out to is the number for you. Because in the New Testament, what happens is you are to give reflecting and responding to the way God gave to you. Let me ask you, have you been more blessed or less than the Old Testament folks? You've been more blessed. And so now that fact and that figure is thrown out the window, and now your giving is to be a response to and a reflection of how God has given to you. You're to respond, that's your motivation, and reflect, that's the marks. Your giving is to be a response and a reflection of the way that God gave you. So how did God give you? He gave generously, right? If you read through this passage in 8 and 9, you're going to find this word generous over and over and over again. The Macedonians gave in an overflowing of generosity. Why? Because that's how God gave to you. So your giving is to reflect that reality. It's not cheap, and it's not leftovers. Right In the scriptures, you find that God's people will give him their first fruits, the the first of all that they have. So it's not after we budget everything and whatever we have left goes to God, but what goes to God goes first, and everything else we have left is what we make do with. 
because we're tr seeking to be generous. What you're doing is as you're trying to open your hands, you're looking to the open hands of Jesus and saying, does my giving reflect that reality? And that's what you're shooting for. Christian giving is to be marked by generosity. It's to be marked also by sacrifice, right? If you read through this passage, you find that in a time when the Macedonians could have easily fundraised for themselves, they are giving. They're becoming poor so that others might become rich. It's costing them something. Why? Because that's the way God gave you, right? When God gave to you, it cost him something. It cost him everything. God's gift to you came with a cost. And so your giving needs to reflect that reality. If it doesn't cost you something, it's not gospel giving. So that means there are things that you will not be able to do, places you will not be able to go, things you will not be able to buy because you are committed to reflecting the reality of God's giving to you. If it doesn't cost, it's not gospel giving. You see, that's why we don't say 10%, right? That's why we throw the number out. Some of you go, whew, it's not 10%. We don't have to keep that law anymore. But the point is that we're throwing out the number to say, here, are you sacrificing? And for some of you, that will work out to this. And some of you, that will work out to this. For some of you, that will be less than 10. Some of you, that will be much more than 10. But the question is, are you sacrificing? Is it costing something? Are you reflecting the reality of God's sacrifice for you? And you go back and you crunch and work on those numbers till it does. Till your giving is sacrificial. Right? What we're saying is each person, in 2 Corinthians, we don't have time, in 8, he'll say each person gives according to what they have, not according to what they don't have. And so for some of you, that'll look like this, and for some of you, that'll look like this. But the point is generosity and sacrifice, whatever the figure ends up being. That's why Jesus can look in the, in the book of Luke. He looks at a woman who gives two coins and says, her generosity exceeded everyone else's. Not because she put more in the plate, but because what she gave came at great cost. So to the college folk, it'll maybe look different than the married folk. But the heart of the question is, does your giving, is it marked by generosity? And is it marked by sacrifice? And is it marked by joy? What happens in the Macedonians? Their abundance of joy resulted in their overflowing generosity. Why? Because that's the way God gave to us. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. For the joy of glorifying the Father and of redeeming you, Jesus went to the cross. He didn't do it out of compulsion. He didn't do it reluctantly. He didn't do it hesitantly. He didn't do it with a frown on his face. He submitted to the will of the Father. He says in John 10, no one takes my life. I lay it down voluntarily because it was in his heart to give till he had nothing left to give. And so your giving needs to reflect that reality. If your giving is marked by reluctance, compulsion, hesitancy, grumbling, then do not give. I'm serious. But work through in your heart till God produces joy into your heart. Second Corinthians, Paul will say, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Your giving is to be marked by joy, just like God's generosity to you. No one's forcing his hands open 
He is generous. And your hands should not be pried open. They should flow open as his did. And so what do you do? Your giving is to be a response to and a reflection of God's giving to you. So you go back and you work through these three things, generosity and sacrifice and joy. And whatever that is, that is. And you give it to the good of all people and to the glory of God. So friends, how are we doing with all of this? What does your giving look like if you give? What, what does it look like for you? Is it motivated by guilt? Is it to impress God? Is it to impress people? Or is it a response to and a reflection of God's generosity to you? So here's what I want to do. I want to bring this to a close and give you a few practical words for here, for us here at Seven Mile Road. One, for all of you who are visitors, I am sincerely grateful that you sat through and listened to this whole thing for me. But I am telling you, we are not asking you to give to us here. You need to hear that. If you get invited to someone's house and you're a guest there, what would it be like if they footed you a bill at the end and said, here's what you owe? No. It is our joy to have you, our joy to host you, our earnest desire that you are blessed by being here with us. We are delighted to host every guest and every visitor. But if you belong here, then I'm asking you, are you giving? And does your giving reflect God's giving to you? Does it respond to God's giving to you? As a pastor, I want to encourage you and tell you the grace of God is really rich to us here at Seven Mile Road. We are really, truly recipients of rich, lavish grace from God. The building that you drove to, the room that you now sit in, the seats that you sit on, the Bibles you're reading, all of it was given to us for free. The website that pointed people to this place, all of it for free. Not even to mention that your sins are forgiven. You've been adopted by God, heirs with Christ. We have Jesus in this life and Jesus in the next. And all of that was given to you for free. God has been exceedingly generous to us. And so I want you to hear as your pastor, we are seeking to respond to God's generosity in that same way. As a church, we're trying to do that. I want you to know that before the end of this week, we will have given away 20% of our local income to others. We will have given away 10% for the work of church planting so that other cities might hear the gospel and people come to know God even as we have. And we will have given away 10% to the work of relief for the poor, whether it's the earthquake in Haiti or working with Bombay Teen Challenge. Our heart is, listen, God has been exceedingly generous to us. And the worst hypocrisy would be for me to tell you, you are to be generous, but the church not to do the same thing. So I need you to hear, every dollar you go he give here does not go here. But our heart is continually to be generous. Even as some of you may ask, aren't we in the middle of a fundraising campaign for ourselves? We've got repairs and renovations to do. But here's the thing. If we're going to cut things, may we cut those things before we cut giving. Right? So if that means you will sit here in a hot summer with no AC and loud fans for the next 20 years, that will be it. Because God help us to be generous and sacrificial and joyful as God has been that way to us. God's grace is rich here. And I want to leave you with one last thing as an encouragement to you. 
This is a, an email I got just two weeks ago from someone here at Seven Mile Road. Just hear this with me. It says, hello, pastor. Could you help me with a secret mission of mine? The Lord has brought me through some very difficult times in the past and recently a very difficult year. Frankly, he is still bringing me through it. But through it all, I have always known he is with me and I am very blessed by him, even though I may not always see it at the time. This year especially, I am prayerfully seeking out another who may need a little sunshine in their lives that the Lord would like me to share my blessings with them just as someone did for me last year. You see, last year, right before Christmas, I received anonymously in the mail $200 in cash, and, and I will never forget the overwhelming feeling I had and how grateful to God I was. I know God sent it to me through one of his servants here on earth. I have no idea who that angel was or who answered the call of God, but God does, and he knows what a blessing it was for me at that time. Anyway, not knowing all the church yet or their situations, I was wondering if you knew of someone or a family that may be experiencing a difficult time this holiday season. I can't do as much as I would like, but I can do something. And then the person goes on to talk about what they'd like to do. Is there someone you are aware of whom I could send a little surprise blessing to? I don't want to know who, but what the need may be. And if I can help, I'll give you the something and ask if you'd pass it on to them anonymously for me. Any guidance would be gratefully appreciated. God's blessing to you. We're starting to get it. Let's pray.